remember, the definitions of who will be covered by this legislation are directly going to be linked to what's happening in the telecommunications uh, review code, right? So at the end of the day, we still don't really know because that's still a moving target to some extent. But we have a general understanding of who will be falling in there. Um, however, there are still some areas right now, depending on when you see both are still draft pieces of legislation, where there is some differences. A perfect example is the concept where communications is an ancillary service. When the commission proposed the telco review, they did not actually fall within the scope. However, for e-privacy, they do fall in the scope. And that actually is leading to a lot of questions from our, from, uh, our national trade associations. Um, a lot of our SMEs are wondering, okay, I mean, how does this work? Why is the commission proposing one piece of legislation one way and proposing another piece of legislation another way? Another area that continues to raise some eyebrows from some of our membership is, does this or does this not apply to machine-to-machine -machine communication and IoT connections? Is this only really about um, machines communicating across a, a publicly available network, which would essentially be like the e-privacy the e today, or is this different? And the reason why this raises a lot of questions is the way this is phrased and how you can go about actually accessing that communication. And it's totally based on consent. And consent works in some instances, and it's not something that our members are against. I mean, consent is a legal basis that's available in GDPR. It's something that's available under the 1995 directive. It's something that they've been dealing with for a long time. But when you start talking about how does consent work in an IoT sphere, especially when you're talking about an enterprise IoT area where it's two sensors communicating information to each other. And if for some reason we're talking about something beyond a publicly available network and you need to access that communication for whatever reason it may be, and there's no exemption for network and information security reasons, how do you go about get getting that consent, not only from one, but both end users, especially if there's no human interface on this, uh, on this IoT device? Now, We've heard some mixed signals from the commission and from some people about how they interpret it, and maybe it'll be fixed all at the end. But the question right now is this raises more potential problems than provides solutions, right? Now, when we talk further about this concept of, maybe my, how am I doing here on time? Am I okay? No, you're okay. I'm all right. So I'll, I'll, I'll raise another, so I'll raise one other thing and then we'll sort of move forward. Um, one area where I think the, the commission has sort of been trying to use an example to make people think about how do we apply the offline world to the online world. So essentially what the commission is thinking about is if I send you a letter in the mail, we want to assume that the postman or the postwoman is not going to read that message, right? And I think we can all agree on that. But maybe you have a very busy life and maybe you have a personal assistant or a secretary and you tell your secretary, listen, I'm getting a lot of mail every day. Can you please go ahead and I'll I'll let you read that mail and then put on my desk only the stuff that's really important and then I'll get to the other stuff that's important. If that secretary, if we're applying this now to the way the e-privacy is written, she would be breaking the law because she hasn't obtained my consent. So this is the issue when you start applying this both end users consent model, which is how it's written right now in the e-privacy regulation, it makes it more difficult. So if we apply it to the online world, when we all use personal or these new assist personal assistants that are coming out within our inboxes, where maybe I send a message to you and say, let's go somewhere, and then it provides, you know, let's see how much a taxi would cost to go there or the weather, you know, maybe you can give consent when you actually use that personal assistant. But the personal assistant doesn't have a relationship with me. And if I'm not even using the same email platform, for example, how is it going to go about obtaining consent for myself? So these are things where we have some concerns, 
And it goes, as I said, beyond this discussion of cookies and advertising, which again, we'll talk about and will certainly, at least in the parliament debate, as we've already seen, is going to be the focus. But we have to not forget about the way this is going to apply to all different types of services that will now be classified as an electronic communication service. Some of these fixes might be easy, some of them might be a little bit more difficult, but if we only talk about cookies and do not track in advertising, we're not gonna take the time properly to investigate these things. And I'm sure a couple other examples can be given here by, by the company on the, uh, on the panel, but um, this is the way that Digital Europe is approaching it. I mean, we wanna be seen as providing some solutions, not just pointing out the negatives. But at the end of the day, this is a very dense piece of legislation. The commission has a very ambitious timeline to not only want the negotiations to be finalized by May 2018, so in one year, but have it apply so companies will have to be ready to actually put all these provisions into, into practice, and then if they don't, have enforcement on top of them. And when you have a 4% fine potential of your global turnover, that's a, pretty, uh, that's a pretty tall task, especially as companies are already struggling to get that compliance in place for GDPR. So I think there needs to be a little bit of, you know, we can all be ambitious, but kind of have a little bit of a, a reality check on the timing here. Well, maybe I'll stop there and then we can talk further later. One question I'll toss out sure. while, while we've got you. Uh, as I recall, the, uh, the paper that Digital Europe put out actually argued for, for there not to be a new regulation, but rather for the, for the elements to be instead incorporated into existing laws, mm -hmm. including the proposed European Code. You didn't actually mention that, but is it still the position? Listen, I think it's in a, in a perfect world that is certainly the Digital Europe position, right? And that's something that we were telling the Commission as soon as the GDPR was over and the hints were coming that e-privacy was going. But we also want to be proactive and, react and, and realistic here. I mean, if I go into every meeting and Digital Europe only publishes saying that, well, get rid of this, well, we might as well you know, not, not do any discussion on this because it's, it's here, it's happening, unless we can really see some core problems and you, never, and you never know. But, I mean, we also want to be able to say, hey, remember, we don't think this is necessary and that's why we think there's all these problems that are coming up. So be aware that we've already told you about this, but we do in a perfect world think that a lot of these provisions that overlap with GDPR could be scrapped, and those that still exist could very easily be folded into the telecommunications code, and that same right to, to um, confidential uh, communications can still be protected, which is something that all our members agree about. I mean, I'm a citizen too, right? I mean, I wanna make sure my communications are, are protective and confidential but I use OTT services not because I think there's some European law connecting it, I do it because of based on the technology that they provide. Okay, so thank you very much for that and why don't we move on to our second speaker and that'll be uh, Nicholas Blades, uh, who's uh, Director of Regulation, Competition and Data Policy at Telefonica. And with that, you have the floor. Thank you very much. Um, so, Telefonica is president in three European countries, that's Spain, Germany, and the UK. So, uh, these, uh, the proposal may well apply in Spain and Germany, question mark on the timing, whether it would apply still to the UK. Um, we're already subject to the e-privacy directive um, and the GDPR, and we were calling for a review of uh, the legislation, principally to ensure that uh, there was a level playing field between uh, those competitors who fall within the scope of e-privacy and those who, who did not at the time. Um, and like all companies, uh, I mean, we generate an awful lot of data um, and we're becoming more and more data-driven. Um, not least, uh, the way we route telephone calls and the way we route data requires us to actually look at 
the metadata um, of uh, customers' communications. And uh, one of my colleagues was telling me earlier that, um, that <clears throat> there have been some, been some proposals that to require both the, uh, the A party and the B party in old telecom speak to provide consent for the metadata even to be read. Mm. Well, in those circumstances, we don't have a phone network because um, if I'm calling from Telefonica to Vodafone, it's Vodafone's customer uh, who would need to provide consent for Telefonica to send them a phone call, and that's just not going to work. Okay, So um, we need to start thinking sensibly about how the industry actually works um, before making any, any <coughs> proposals to increase the scope of regulation beyond what's already on the table. Um, at Mobile World Congress, which is our big trade show in February, Telefonica outlined um, its plans to put customers at, um, in control of their data and to make uh, it really work for them and share in the value. <clears throat> and those of you who have access to analyst reports might want to look at the uh, Morgan Stanley report today um, that talks quite a lot about Aura, the product, and how telcos might be looking to uh, share that, the, the value of that data uh, with their customers going forward. We set a very high bar for ourselves in terms of uh, privacy uh, and consent. Um, and so it's sort of a, quite a good question to ask, why would we then have concerns with there being um, regulation around privacy and consent? Um, there's two reasons, really. Firstly, we'd actually like to use privacy as a competitive vector. So if we decide to be this private, we should gain some competitive advantage from the rest of the market if they don't want to respect customers' privacy quite so much. So there's a sort of economic reason. And the other reason is regulation has a horrible tendency to make the interaction with the customer very clunky um, and not be uh, customer-friendly at all. So I'd just like to talk about two questions we have about the existing proposal. So does the proposal learn the lessons of the past, or to use the jargon from the document, um, does it benefit from the refit analysis that's been undertaken? And I will talk about cookies, because the answer is no. So even that document identifies the fact that the cookies legislation was over-prescriptive. It created a terrible customer experience. How many times a day do you do that? Do you ever read the cookie notice? No. The only people who have benefited from the cookie legislation are the manufacturers of the little um, button inside the mouse whose product runs out or wears out at a much greater um, uh, life cycle or shorter life cycle, and so more mouses have to be sold because people are just doing this to click through the cookie notice. Okay? So that's a piece of very bad regulation. Are we going to learn anything from it? And the answer to that, it doesn't appear to be yes at the moment. Um, what we have is a very prescriptive consent regime, and you're going to have the same sort of regulatory failure. So we really need to avoid that. So that's the first thing we're interested in. Second question is, does the proposal pick up on best practice? So there's a lot of best practice out there in relation to privacy, not least the GDPR. So we just spent four years going through a privacy regime that would apply to the whole universe, uh, within Europe and is effectively becoming the global standard uh, if you want to use any of Europe's data. Um, so sh are there things that we can take from GDPR and inform uh, the e-privacy legislation? Um, the, the, 
GDPR allows data controllers some latitude in, in relation to content and also credits them with a certain amount of common sense. But that's, also, that's within uh, a very strong framework of accountability. So if data controllers make the wrong choices, they can be subject to fines. Okay? So it's not the Wild West. It's something that applies to everybody. Um, but it strikes a balance between um, data controllers having perfect information about what they're going to use the data for and not overburdening the customer with a very prescriptive uh, consent process. And we need to learn from that, not discard it and start from ground zero with, uh, with the privacy. So, as we're focused on the customer and the customer experience, um, what could be done to make that piece of the new piece of legislation more customer friendly? So the first thing would be to align the concept of consent for purpose or purposes, I think it says as well, uh, with the, the concept of um, compatible further processing in GDPR. That's the way really to ensure that data can be used for the, the uh, reason the customer has originally given consent and very closely aligned uh, activities to that. So uh, uh, an example of that would be um, calling party analysis, for example, in the telecoms network. We look at calling party analysis to dimension links, um, how many of our customer calls are going from uh, our network to another type of network, for example. Um, what could be done to make, uh, in, in terms of the, the sort of common sense element to it, we think it should really, the legislation should trust um, data controllers a little bit more um, to act in the interest of their customers and in society in general. And I'd like to use one example, and that's cybersecurity. <coughs> so if there's an absolute prohibition on using information about the content of a packet um, uh, without both parties' consent, Cybersecurity, driven from the network, is going to have a real problem. So would you prefer to ensure that you receive only uh, packets of data without malware inside and that the network can look inside and see whether there's malware? Well, you would need both the permission of yourself and the hacker to be able to do that under the new e-privacy regime because there isn't this common sense uh, exemption um, that exists in uh, GDPR uh, for things that are a legitimate interest for your customer. Okay? What about critical national infrastructure? So if we see there's a big cyber attack going on, can we uh, contact a, uh, a provider of critical national infrastructure who isn't our customer? Well, no, because there's an absolute prohibition on providing uh, information about things that are happening to our customers to third parties without the consent of our customer and the hacker. So as I say, there are some lessons to be learned from previous pieces of legislation, and it would be really useful if we could learn them through the process of adopting this piece, uh, this regulation. Well, thank you. So here I'll use, I guess, moderator's privilege for a second. Uh, as far as the existing uh, e-privacy directive, as, uh, as Nicholas was just saying, it includes these cookie rules. You've all seen the little pop-ups. We use cookies. Please click here to accept them. Uh, how many people in the room, I'd like to see a show of hands, how many people think that these rules have contributed in a positive way to the sum total of human happiness in Europe? Could I see a show of hands? 
Let it be recorded, we do have one hand. Okay, so um, in any case, I think many would argue that this was one of the, one of the many respects in which the, the, the directive was ripe for some rethinking. Uh, I, I think a fair point. Uh, I, I should add, by the way, I've, I've asked Professor Orsky to, to uh, 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 Professor Linsky, excuse me, uh, to speak last because I thought the, the academic perspective in, in, in wrap-up would be useful. Uh, with that said, I'd, I'd like to hand the, uh, the floor over to uh, Jeremy Rollison from Microsoft. And uh, again, you've got 10 minutes. Okay. I don't think I'll need all 10 minutes. I think I'll echo some of the points that were made earlier. Um, listen, at, at Microsoft, we'll be captured in the scope of this, obviously, with a number of our services and products. Um, I think we're still a bit in question mode because many of the provisions that were highlighted earlier and some of the the more problematic aspects of this, you know, potentially are, are just questions of different interpretations. I think the text as written um, has raised a lot of concerns if it were to become law as written because there are some areas that I think uh, do need to be clarified and, and I can't imagine that the intention was what the letter of the text would maybe indicate. I can't imagine that this proposal would require the consent of the spammer for a spam filter to work uh, probably I, I, I'm pretty optimistic that we'll uh, see improvements along those lines. Um, so just to kick off, I, I think, listen, we're not in, interested in selling any products to our customers that don't come with a guarantee of confidentiality. I think all of our communications products in particular, and I think even some of the efforts we've made in the U.S. around law enforcement access to data in particular demonstrate some of that uh, commitment that we want to make, and I think some of the competitive edge that you described earlier, I think we see it very similarly. So protecting the fundamental right to confidentiality is, is you know, no, no disagreements there. Uh, I think how you interpret confidentiality and intercept is where we start to see the text become a little bit problematic. I, I think the idea that you would require all end users' consent for access to communications uh, it just means that there won't be a lot of features that I think we've all seen to become commonplace. I think that is an example of where this would even go beyond the offline environment, similar to the example Alex described, but similar to the example in the European Parliament here. We all know most assistants check their MEP's email. I don't think everyone emailing those MEP addresses would ever be able to provide a consent for that assistant to actually have access to the content of that communications, and I don't think anyone expects it to. But if we look at the text as written, there would be that expectation in an offline, uh, in an online context uh, for what is mostly automated um, access to communications content. I think at the end of the day, there are a lot of services that do require access to communications to function. I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to ask for the user's consent for those features. I, I think that can generally be accommodated. We're rolling out increasing amounts of personal assistance software and functionalities that you know you're communicating with somebody, and if you consent, you know we can provide suggestions of you know ways to get there more quickly, what traffic might look like, what the weather might look like. We can populate your calendar with this. But again, if you needed the consent of the airline who's emailing you your reservation to be able to, for Microsoft to access the content of that communications, I don't understand how that third party. Uh, aspect would be accommodated. So again, I'm, I, that's a question to see where the uh, where we can get more clarity. Another issue that I think would be helpful to understand and potentially move the debate to a more workable space is, you know, the expectation here is 
that for anything that constitutes communications data, you'll need consent, right? But are we talking about data in transit, or are we talking about communications data wherever it may be? So at the terminal level, my inbox, or you know, even if we take a connected fridge example, since to answer Alex's question, this does apply to IoT and machine-to-machine. -machine. Well, I can understand e-privacy applying to the transmission and the communications between those two devices or between those two terminals but GDPR applying at the terminal level itself. Is that the intention here, or is it that communications content is communications content and would be subject to e-privacy, whether it's in my inbox or you know, wherever it may be? Then we come back to the personal assistant example that we saw earlier. So that's another area of clarity that um, we'd like to know a little bit more about before we raise too many arguments about how to improve it. I think that would at least move it to a more workable space. You mentioned the cookies earlier, I think, you know, regardless of you know, advertising models or anything like that. I mean, we operate a browser, and there's a lot of browser manufacturers, um, and this would go beyond browsers. This would go to any pieces of software that would provide such connections. So there are tools that already exist that prohibit the dropping of cookies, and you can even you know, prohibit third-party cookies. But we don't have a tool yet that would say you can prohibit bad cookies but let in all the good cookies. So we, again, clarity as to what the expectation is around these settings um, and what's deemed sufficient. That, that's another area that I think once we have an understanding of what the intention is and where we can get clarity, we can have some more workable uh, discussions probably too. And then finally, a point that hasn't been raised yet, you know, there are some concerns. I, I sort of started out by saying the fact that we've taken such a large scope and the number of services now that'll fall into this, everything from Microsoft Skype service to you know, your Tinder application and the communications that occur there, all of this will be in. So there's gonna be a lot of different models that are raising a lot of different questions. And a lot of these models are also now going to be subject for the first time to requirements under Article 11 for, for law enforcement requests for access. I think it would be a bit ironic if a proposal aimed at ensuring confidentiality makes it even easier for law enforcement to have access to that communications content. So we'd like to see some clarity or potentially some additional safeguards around that provision to know under what circumstances law enforcement can put forward those requests, what form they should take, and what how that would operate, particularly in a cross-border context where many of these new applications and services that fall into scope may not have a presence in Europe, or they may only be present in one member state. So that's one of the final points. And I think, very broadly, we're hard at work right now preparing compliance for GDPR. And one of the things that this does, and I think regardless of where you fall on the spectrum, um, you can appreciate the fact and acknowledge that this is, this is a lot to digest uh, over the next couple of years. Um, I think we have over 300 people internally who are preparing GDPR compliance, and we have a much, much larger footprint than many other companies, so that explains some of um, the resources we need to do that. But some of the decisions that we have to make in that context, particularly about legal bases for processing, some of which is now, we got a message recently from Article 29, who are looking at guidance documents around consent in the context of GDPR, where we saw a very clear message, or we're told that there's a very clear message that you should be looking at other legal bases for processing, particularly legitimate interest. Okay, we're doing that. But now anything that is communications data, that's gonna to need to fall under a consent uh, basis. Well, that disrupts some of the planning that you may be making for your GDPR compliance without knowing where e-privacy is ultimately going to land. So I can appreciate the idea of making all of this apply at the same time, but until we know where this ultimately lands and until we get some answers to those questions that I raised earlier about what provisions mean what, you can appreciate the difficult job of those who are trying to ensure compliance um, and ensure that 
they're not amongst the first ones to be fined um, with some of the big fines that are now possible. Um, so these are a lot of outstanding questions that everyone would probably have different priority on depending on what your model is, but because we've taken such a large scope to this and even applications and services with only an ancillary messaging feature fall into scope of this, uh, this is going to take a lot of time to specify and tease out, tease out a little bit to know exactly how your model is going to be impacted, particularly when I think a lot of people are still raising questions about how their models are going to be impacted by GDPR. Um, so it's a lot to digest, and I think we could just benefit and have a lot more. Um, I'm optimistic that we can move into very workable discussions because I can't imagine the intent is what some of the more problematic examples might seem to indicate. So I'm a little optimistic. But. Cautious optimism is what I think I heard. Good. Thanks. So actually, uh, I, that suggests a question, but I think I'd like to direct this one first to Professor, uh, Professor Orlinski. Uh, that's suggested by what we just heard. So uh, really it has to do with the question of areas where there's overlap between the, uh, the new privacy regulation uh, and the GDPR. My understanding is in this context that the, uh, the new privacy regulation would be treated as lex specialis, whereas the relative to the GDPR lex generalis. That means that because the uh, the, the new regulation is more specific than the GDPR, it would take precedence in those areas where it takes a an explicit position. Is, is that your understanding? Am I getting this right? Uh, yes, that would be absolutely my understanding, but I do agree with some of the, the points that have been made by previous speakers. For instance, the point that's just been made there by Jeremy about the, the lack of clarity regarding the scope of the e-privacy e directive. So are we talking here about data in transit or data held uh, you know, at the, at the terminal equipment or at end devices. So is that within the scope of the e-privacy or is that in, within the scope of the GDPR? So it might be helpful to have things like that clarified in the recitals of the e-privacy the e directive. Um, but you know, on that issue of um, the relationship between the e-privacy directive and the GDPR, so I guess I should start by saying that, that my primary area of research experience is, is looking at the right to data protection, its application by the Court of Justice, and then the foundations of EU data protection law. And I think actually, um, trying to make an academic connection here, you can see that the debate on the e-privacy directive very much reflects one of the central tensions in EU data protection regulation which is that on the one hand, it is kind of normatively or aspirationally driven towards individual control over personal data. And you see that very explicitly in the GDPR, in the, the provisions like the micro rights, in particular, um, the right to data portability. But um, while it is driven in that way from an idealistic or an aspirational perspective, that in practice leads to a lot of tensions most notably because personal data can relate to various individuals at one time. And I think that because the e-privacy directive um, has really taken that idea of individual control over personal data, whereas, as um, Jeremy has said, in the GDPR there's an effort, while placing emphasis on control of individuals, there's been an effort to bolster that by reference to other aspects, such as the legitimate interests of the controller and accountability on the one hand, so putting more emphasis on controller um, 
controller control, <laughs> um, for want of a better way of explaining it. Um, and then also on the role of the supervisory authorities in actually enforcing data protection law. So to really kind of buttress the framework of individual control over personal data with these additional measures to make the overall framework more effective. And I think what you don't see in the e-privacy directive is in many ways that, that direction. So we don't have that same level of accountability for the controllers in terms of, um, I think Nicholas gave the example of data security issues. There, I think the only way you could really take into account data security issues if you need the consent of both end users is by relying on an Article 11 exception at member state level. So you can see there that that's where this type of thing becomes um, problematic. But equally, when you look at the enforcement mechanisms in the e-privacy directive, you see that some of the mechanisms provided for by the GDPR, and most notably here, I think, from a, a civil society perspective, the GDPR provides for a very important right for collective action or representative action on behalf of data subjects in order to enforce data protection rights. And that's now entirely absent. I'm sure colleagues on the panel will be quite happy about that. But that's now entirely absent from um, the e-privacy regulation. So I think a lot of the problems that have been discussed here already stem from the fact that it's taking this very individual-centric approach. Now, I think it would have been good to move away from that model, but it, it seems we haven't. So, you know, this being said, what are the other features of the regulation that um, might be talking points from a regulator perspective or a civil society perspective? Well, here, you know, as has already been mentioned, I don't think anybody would argue that the, the current opt-in model for cookies has been um, a regulatory success. <laughs> I think that's clear from the room today. Then the question is, what do you do in order to rectify that situation? Do you move away from consent? That's not what's happening. Well, then I think from an individual's perspective, you need to, again, buttress that consent, make it easier for individuals. And here, for instance, the Article 29 Data Protection Working Party has argued for a total ban on um, cookie walls. So the idea that you wouldn't be able to access um, an online service if you don't accept cookies. Now, I do appreciate the point that cookies are often you know, multifunctional and can serve uh, various purposes. So there is a question about the technical um, logistics there. And I'm a lawyer. I'm not going to go into that. Um, but I also think there, there, there are some other um, issues there. So I think it's quite helpful that in Article 10 of the regulation, that there's recognition of the role that gatekeepers can play in helping to enhance individual data protection and privacy rights. Um, but I think as Frederick Borghesius had kind of mentioned before the European Parliament in hearings this week, um, so the idea here is that you as an individual, when you first um, use a particular web browser after the 25th of May next year, which I agree is an ambitious timetable, um, that you would um, be given an, a very kind of granular choice as to what type of cookies, if any, you were willing to um, have um, placed on your terminal um, equipment. So this could be, for instance, no tracking at all by any cookie, no, no collection of data by cookies. Um, and that this would be the browser then that would enforce that when you subsequently visit websites. So it's really enlisting the, 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 the use of the browser as a privacy enhancing or a data protection enhancing technology. And that's something that privacy advocates have been very, um, have been very supportive of. But I do also take the point that this is very technology specific. 
And we're talking here about um, data processing in the context of internet access, whereas we've already mentioned the Internet of Things a couple of times, and it's difficult to see how that provision would be helpful in the context of direct machine-to-machine -machine communications. So you also see there that um, the kind of professed technological neutrality of the regulation is, is not materialized in practice. But I do think um, this, this, this mechanism, and this goes to the European Union's um, and particular discussions in France and Germany on platform power, that, that focusing more on the systemic level at the role of um, gatekeepers in this context will be um, more useful in the long term than pushing everything back on individuals to, to exercise their own rights. We might also get a better, um, a better balance in terms of how and when personal data can be processed as a result. Um, then just two other points I'd like to make very briefly. First of all, on, on the case for harmonisation here, well, obviously I'm not coming at this from an in industry perspective. I can imagine a regulation um, is quite useful. I think one thing that's quite striking here is that the GDPR, even though it's a regulation, contains um, multiple very important exceptions that will be determined at national level. So most obvious here, I think, is um, the fact that it's at national level that we'll see a balance between data protection and privacy and freedom of expression. So that's entirely critical to the scope of application of the rules, and it's still going to be applied at national level. It seems to me that this regulation, and maybe colleagues would um, disagree, but this regulation seems to be a little bit... Um, a, a little bit more um, like a regulation in nature insofar as it seems to leave less discretion to the member states. Um, it also is going to in, um, embrace the architecture for enforcement that's put in place by the GDPR. So most notably you have the creation of a European Data Protection Board which will be able to issue binding decisions even if the lead authority, um, so leading the, the investigation of transnational data processing issues disagrees. So this is kind of a right to override, which is quite controversial when you put it, first of all, in the context of independent data protection authorities, but equally for any of, you know, if there are any EU law geeks in the room, <laughs> um, if you're familiar with the Moroni Doctrine, which says that EU agencies should only be given um, this independent decision-making power in fields which are purely technical, I think this, this agency goes beyond the powers of any other EU agency insofar as data protection is a very um, normative um, field of law. And so you're giving decision-making powers to an agency in an area where everything is to be argued. And you can see that at the moment in the current clashes between, um, for instance, some of the German data, data protection authorities and the Belgian and others, and the Irish Data Protection Commissioner on how Facebook's data, data processing should be um, dealt with and whether or not it's compatible with the EU rules. So the idea that there's one definitive technical answer <laughs> to that question is, um, I think, perhaps a stretch. And then final point, um, because I'm sure I've gone over my time. It's okay. It's okay? Okay. Um, so final point is just on um, international data transfers. So Nicholas um, queried, you know, whether or not the e-privacy regulation would apply in the UK and have mentioned, well, Possibly so, because um, if you're looking at personal data protection as a parameter of competition between companies, we're starting to see that emerge, although because it goes to the quality of a particular product offered, and quality is such a kind of multifaceted um, element, it's very difficult for individuals to choose services simply on the basis of um, privacy. 
or data protection options. Um, I think that might be one reason why this will apply in the UK. The other obvious reason why this might apply in the UK is because of um, adequacy. So at the moment, um, presuming, as it seems highly likely, that the UK will exit the EU and that that will be a hard exit, then that means that the UK will become a third country for um, personal data processing purposes. Now, this might be um, hypocritical, but at the moment the UK benefits from a presumption that it offers an adequate level of protection to personal data. However, it will lose that and therefore we can have flows between the UK and other EU member states. However, once it steps outside of the EU, it will lose that presumption and it will need to show that it offers an essentially equivalent standard of protection for personal data um, in order for data flows between the UK and other EU member, and EU member states to continue. Now, the, the current... Um, ICO, um, so the regulator in the UK, Elizabeth Denham, has indicated that the GDPR will be, um, will, will be enacted and will continue to apply post-Brexit. I haven't heard any indications on, on the e-privacy regulation, but I would say in, in that spirit, it seems likely it would. But the, the bigger issue for the UK will be that the ECJ's Schrems judgment didn't focus simply on the data processing conditions applicable to the private sector, it also looked at the state surveillance apparatus at play in the US to say that means that when data are transferred between the EU and the US, the protections offered are inadequate. Now we have a very conclusive judgment from the European Court of Justice from December of um, last year, which indicates that the UK's um, intelligence, and so the Investigatory Powers Act, well, it's, it's predecessor, um, so some, some, some um, minor changes have been made, but on the whole that the UK's intelligence framework doesn't comply um, with the rights to data protection and privacy. So I think the UK might be left with quite a stark choice post-Brexit as to whether or not to change um, the way in which it approaches um, state, state surveillance issues um, or to lose international data transfers. Now, the idea that there would be some sort of negotiated or political solution to that, to me, seems quite tricky because the, the reasoning of the Court of Justice is very much anchored in the rights to data protection and privacy, which trump any, um, which trump any legislative or commission decision, legislative measure or commission decision. So this seems to me to be um, quite a difficult position for, um, for those interested in adequacy to, to negotiate around. Um, but I'm sure others will have comments on that, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Well, I'll uh, actually toss a comment out on that last one. It's interesting that the, uh, the, that the word that you chose was that it uh, trumps other considerations. Um, the, uh, the solution, uh, I, by the way, there's a, a Bruegel blog that uh, I authored that makes almost exactly the same points. Um, but uh, as, as many of you would be aware, the Privacy Shield Agreement with the U.S. that seeks to deal with exactly the same issues uh, was based in part on an executive order from the Obama era, and uh, Trump's first executive order on migration basically took an almost opposite position, Obama saying that foreigners have privacy rights in the United States, Trump saying that they don't. So um, in any case, with, with, with that said, do you think there's any prospect for a privacy shield-like agreement between the EU and post-Brexit UK? I think a lot will hang on the balance, um, depending on what happens to the current uh, litigation. So 
Um, we know that the, the, the privacy shield agreement, um, let's see whether or not that survives its first review. I think if you're to be true to the, word, to the wording and the findings of the Court of Justice, it, it probably shouldn't. Um, but at the moment, there's litigation pending um, before the Irish High Court querying whether the other mechanisms <laughs> to allow for international data transfers, so the more ad hoc mechanisms, um, such as standard contractual clauses or, um, or um, mo model contracts, for instance, or binding corporate rules, whether those mechanisms are also subject to this same rationale. And so, so kind of shrems too, I guess. Um, and all eyes are on the Irish High Court to see the Irish Data Protection Commissioner engineered that litigation post-Shrems in order to have questions about the, the compatibility of those mechanisms with EU rights referred to the Court of Justice. It's <coughs> unclear whether or not the Irish High Court will actually refer those questions. Now, if it doesn't, um, I would say um, it's, it's at least possible that there would be an appeal and that that would go to the Supreme Court and if it raises a question of EU law, the Supreme Court would then be bound to refer those questions to the ECJ. And then the, I, I think that the way in which um, Schrems was framed um, by the Court of Justice just leaves it very little room for manoeuvre to not find those mechanisms <laughs> um, incompatible with the, the rights to privacy and data protection. So I think a lot... A few critical judgments, Digital Rights Ireland, Shrems and Tele2, because they're so heavily anchored in the EU Charter, have, have really lessened the room for, for manoeuvre, I believe, at least. That's pretty fascinating. Well, so a question I'll toss to the other panellists based on what uh, Professor Linsky just said. Um, and that is uh, one of the points that she raised had to do with, uh, with European oversight versus member state oversight of these issues. <coughs> Uh, do, you have, uh, do you have preferences on that, and do you have a sense as to what the right position here is? I, I mean, listen, in an ideal world, the one should be interpreting the same regulation across Europe, right? So, in theory, we should be coming to similar conclusions. So, uh, I like to think that we're going for the right objectives there. I think the Germans should come to the same conclusion about the applicability of a regulation that the Irish should come to. If they have plans to do otherwise, well, then we're, we are kind of threatening some of the objectives and benefits of a legal certainty and harmonization that was presented as the impetus for much of these proposals. So, yes, uh, I was going to say, in the Commission's impact assessment also in, in their consultation, uh, lack of consistent implementation across the member states featured pretty prominently. So. It's an issue. I'm sorry, you were going to No, say. I was going to say, I mean, I, I agree right now when you read the, the e-privacy draft regulation that it does have less carve-outs if you look at the final version of the GDPR, but remember that a lot of those carve-outs that were provided to the member states were coming during the legislative process where the council wanted those carve-outs put in there. So the council, as, uh, as people probably are aware, I mean, they have a lot within that one uh, telecommunications working party is dealing with a lot of other files they won't really start looking at e-privacy until the Estonian presidency begins, but there's you know, nothing stopping the member states from putting their general approach, having all different types of carve-outs there. So, I mean, we never, it, like I said, this is still a draft, it's still a moving target. We don't know. Obviously, that's not something that industry would want because the more 
harmonization, the better. It's certainly something that we're very concerned about with the GDPR. Um, there are some very key um, provisions there that do allow member state flexibility. I know the commission is working very diligently with the member states to do their very best to ensure as much of a harmonized approach. But I mean, at the end of the day, is it going to be 100% the same in every member state? Probably not. Toss out one more question to the panel as a whole before we move on to the audience. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Getting over a cold, gang. Sorry. Um, so uh, we've we've heard a lot about uh, about the potential for inconsistencies between the new regulation and the GDPR. Uh, the Commission clearly worked to eliminate clearly redundant sections. The most obvious example being the breach notification portion. Um, but uh, in terms of privacy as a whole, in, in terms of the privacy of communications, um, there does seem to be pretty substantial overlap. The GDPR certainly covers that. And in some cases, as we've just said, the provisions are, are not uh, compatible. Uh, are those sections really necessary? Do they actually do things that are needed that weren't already in the GDPR? Views on that? I just think it's a function of... Um it's one department drafting one, one regulation and another department drafting another piece of regulation. That's, uh, that's the fundamental way that government and uh, public policy works, unfortunately. And that's why we're at the stage of saying, well, you've got these other things on the statute books that taught you uh, some valuable lessons, and you need to sit within that framework that already exists. I think it's as simple as that, I'm afraid. I would argue as well that some of those provisions that they said that they deleted still exist in some aspect. If you look at the article that's related to security, it doesn't require breach notification to the, to the Data Protection Authority or to the competent authority, but it does require some type of notification to all end users about when a particular risk occurs. There's no real clarity on what a particular risk means. Um, again, as we discussed before, uh, informing both end users, specifically if one of the end users is the malicious actor who is involved in the actual security incident. So there is still some type of obligation to inform somebody, and this is very much, in, at least in, in the views of, of uh, Digital Europe, overlapping in some ways with not only the data breach notification requirements in GDPR, but also the breach notification requirements in the Network and Information Security Directive. And what we want to avoid is a situation where we're over-reporting all the time to these data protection authorities because in some member states, these are very small entities. Now, of course, maybe they get more resources after their national laws are updated, but at the end of the day, companies, when they're faced with a potential 4% uh, fine of global turnover, are going to err on the side of caution. And in many instances, that will mean more reporting than normal, just to sort of cover their backs, if we want to use that expression, similar to the way they're going to be issuing more data protection impact assessments to clarify that what is considered a high risk and where that bar lies, we will find out, but they will submit a lot of these data protection impact assessments to the competent authority who is then required to respond to that. And that will either lead to companies waiting to put into place their data processing um, or and combined with the authorities being overwhelmed with large amount of administrative paperwork. Yeah, I, I think concretely this is another spot where just some more clarity would be helpful. Um, knowing how Article 17, as Alex mentioned, in a security context, how the obligations there differ from GDPR, that would already give us a sense of where there may not be problematic overlap. And there's also NIS comes to mind with that too. And even um, 
Article 7 around erasure of data, how is that different or how does that go beyond or specific to communications that the GDPR doesn't already cover? Again, this is just an area where some more clarity would be helpful. Um, well, I would tend to agree that this, this is probably just a practical matter in terms of, of competences, but also um, a historic <coughs> issue insofar as I think the e-privacy e directive, the initial one, served... Sorry, is it mine? No. <laughs> okay, it's, it's not, not mine. <laughs> um, sorry. The e-privacy directive served, um, served a purpose at a time when the data protection directive was... Um, a, a quite a, took up quite a principles-based um, approach, and therefore it really was a, a lex specialis. But I think one thing that's lamentable about the GDPR is that it's obviously gone down, um, gone for a far more prescriptive approach to um, to the way in which it regulates personal data processing. And so, while I think there is a need for some of the provi provisions in the e-privacy regulation, I think these could probably, given that the e uh, the GDPR is a lot more prescriptive now, have been slotted in there. Um, you know, insofar as a lot of, as I said, the, the enforcement apparatus is common to both systems, etc. So I think if you'd taken out the provisions on, on cookies, you know, so articles 5 to 8, and put them in the GDPR, they would no longer look anom anomalous, and you would then have one kind of piece of comprehensive um, legislation. Thanks. So this has been a good exchange. Uh, we usually try to open things up for about a half hour to the audience for questions. And I'm happy to report that we are right on track. So uh, with that, uh, this becomes your session. Uh, when you, uh, if you have a question, uh, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be bringing microphones around. Uh, please identify yourself and your organization before you ask the question. Questions? Here's one. Thank you, Jakob Grenner for Deutsche Telekom. Rather a comment on the uh, question of uh, discretion, member state discretion. What we find very critical in this proposal is that there is still a possibility uh, under a recital that member states can specify at national level what is written in this regulation. So it's a principle of minimal harmonization, not full harmonization, and we've seen in the GDPR that this can be get critical. For example, Germany has uh, proposed a law that might slightly deviate from the GDPR, and I think any multinational company that has several subsidiaries in Europe cannot be happy about this approach because there will be several, maybe different laws at national level uh, trying to specialize uh, what is written in e-privacy. Good. Well, let's take another question or two, and then, uh, then we'll hand off to the panelists. Thank you very much. My name is Wolfgang Pape. <clears throat> I'm associated here with SEPS in Brussels, formerly with the Commission. Uh, I have the feeling this is a very Anglo-Saxon panel, if I dare say so. It sounds like it, and uh, maybe even the cultural background is like that. Being a continental European, I have the feeling there are some cultural differences, not only between Anglo-Saxon continental European. I have been in Japan for a long time, and the idea of individual privacy is completely different particular, the extreme case for me is Japan. It has very little of a history there, and they use the word privacy even as a foreign word in their language. But even within Europe, and you mentioned it, Professor, uh, there is some difference already, UK and the rest of Europe, the 27. And I wonder how far this naturally will have an impact on implementation. It was mentioned that member states might implement these uh, rules differently. Certainly, we have that with other rules as well, but nevertheless, it might be particular in this case. How far can courts 
and the Court of Justice here, of course, is uh, supposed to be the last instance, can have really this kind of harmonizing effect. Is that the last instance? Is there, other, is there any other possibility to have that? And one other question, if I may, is, is there any data or estimation of the commercial value of data received from cookies? Thank you. Those are pretty fascinating questions. We can take maybe one more and then we'll hand off to the panel. We have one. Thank you, uh, Caroline Gray from Cloudflare. Um, the EDPS published the opinion yesterday on e-privacy and proposed separating the e-privacy regulation from the code. I'm just wondering what the panelists think of that idea. You're familiar with that, I presume? Coming back to the point about scope, the fact that that's still somewhat of an open question as negotiations on the code continue, once again, make this, make this difficult to, from a compliance standpoint, when you're already working towards GDPR compliance, which is definitely going to happen. We don't know when this is going to be finalized, and we don't know how many services will ultimately be captured until we do have a definitive answer on the code. So this is a moving target all along the way, which, once again, is, is a difficult spot to be in if you want to make sure that you're providing concrete instructions to engineers who have to roll out changes to all of your services uh, to be compliant by May with GDPR and ultimately with e-privacy when that ultimately lands. So, Tell you what, since you're on, why don't you take on the other two questions and then we'll hand over to other panelists. Okay. Um, if you have anything to yes, say. Yes, there was a question about economic value of the data collected from cookies. Uh, I don't have that data. That was an easy one. Um, <laughs> uh, the other one was the extent to which the courts would provide uh, clarity or jurisprudence. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I think we want to avoid that to a degree. I mean, ideally, the uh, text of the regulation should be clear enough. I think one of the one of the possibilities in a GDPR um, context is that we're seeing the Article 29 group come out with guidance for particular aspects of GDPR. And some of that guidance can potentially look a little bit different than what the requirements of the text may be. And there's some areas of the text that are you know, open to a degree of interpretation. And while I think the court would have the final say and would certainly be able to provide that clarity, I, I don't think I certainly, don't, I certainly don't think our plan is to you know, take this to the court. I think we want to avoid the type of investigations uh, from DPAs that you would then have to challenge and ultimately get an answer from the court. So if the court is providing too much answers in that space, it probably tells us something about how clear the regulation was drafted in the first place. Um, I'll stop there. Okay, good. I'll, why don't we go to Professor Linsky next. I think some of the other questions that we heard related to ability to respond to sort of stylistic differences among the member states. I think especially Germany is being a, a very much a, a counterpoint to the UK. Sorry, I must say I hadn't actually read the recital on minimum harmonization, so I should have had more coffee before reading the regulation. But I, I would agree that that would be, in my opinion, quite problematic. And also um, a real kind of counterindication <laughs> to the very fact that you have a regulation in the first place. So, you know, it does beg the question of whether or not this is a directive in, in a regulation's kind of clothing. Um, 
because, you know, in, in interpreting the directive, obviously the Court of Justice has been very clear that it's a maximum harmonisation instrument and any attempt by member states to introduce other exceptions or to even make the protection stricter have been, have been limited in, in that regard. Um, this probably is a very Anglo-Saxon panel, I agree. Um, but um, So I, I guess coming at the, I'm Irish, but living in the UK, um, there is certainly no legal culture of a right to date. Well, in the UK, there's no right to privacy, and the courts have been very clear on that. Um, so we've kind of had various torts kind of fashioned into some sort of um, various kind of models of, of privacy rights, but there's no overarching right to privacy. In Ireland, there's a constitutional right to privacy, but no culture of data protection, as is quite apparently <laughs> quite obvious. Um, but I think that that, um, that that just goes to the point that I was trying to make in the context of the European Data Protection Board, which is that there are very different normative starting points for the member states when looking at data protection. In some member states, like in Germany, you have decisions from 1983 on the, a right to informational self-determination, which itself isn't even anchored in privacy, it's a personality right. Um, whereas in others, as I said, like Ireland, there's just no history of a right to data protection. It's a purely compliance issue. So what you've seen is um, very much then a top-down approach at, and I dare not mention this in the UK pre-Brexit, <laughs> or in the context of those, um, those, you know, that, that debate, but you've very much seen a top-down approach from the EU of kind of um, creating a right to data protection in the Charter. So it's the only international agreement with a right to data protection that's independent of a right to privacy. And um, I think the European Data Protection Board is going to be very um, interesting in that context because particularly with the UK out of um, the running, I think that the balance um, in terms of decision-making will switch more to countries where there is a history of um, an illegal culture of data protection. So I would actually say that will make things more, more strict and need for a more kind of stringent um, approach to data protection. And then just on the commercial value of data, obviously I have no idea there, but what I do think is, is quite interesting is that if you look at the GDPR provisions on consent, you see that um, consent will um, be deemed invalid um, inter alia if it's based on processing that's not necessary for the performance of a contract. And I really think here we might at some point see, see litigation or guidance on what amount of data it is reasonable for um, services that are provided at, for free at the point of access to process as consideration or compensation for those services. So you see that kind of mentioned explicitly in the recital of the regulation that in some points or in some instances, that's an under-exaggeration, data is provided as compensation or as consideration for um, free services. But we've, as of yet, no indication of what's a reasonable amount of data to process. Um, now, in the context of Facebook audits, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner has said, you know, clearly Facebook is not a charitable organisation and it's reasonable for it to process a certain amount of data as consideration for the free service. But I think there we're likely to see quite a lot of, um, quite a lot of uh, different opinions from DPAs. And I think this is also where competition authorities might start to get involved. Um, is the, the price exploitative? Um, now, obviously, again, exploitation as an abuse of dominance is, you know, exploitative pricing is, is quite controversial, but I think that's where the Bundeskartelamt is going in the, in the Facebook um, investigation. Um, so I think we'll see a lot more focus on, and, and consumer protection authorities, on what is a reasonable amount of data, data processing 
um, as compensation or consideration for free services. That's, uh, that's pretty fascinating. Okay, uh, Nicholas, why don't you go next? Okay, so in terms of the separation of the code from the um, privacy, fundamentally the two things are linked because of the scope. So unless you're going to completely take the OTTs out of scope, um, which is the implication, you can't delink them. Um, I would say that in a world where people communicate by more than just telco networks, it would it would look even odder than it does today that we had one set of rules for one set of communication services, which in 10 years' time might be the dominant applications. Uh, and they were not covered by privacy for what might not be the dominant applications. Just on that point, they did clarify they were content with the scope being extended to OTT. So I think it was rather just separating between definitions and maybe dealing with separate definitions in the in, know, some new privacy context. Right. So. The e-privacy e -privacy regulation is actually very, that's one element where it's very good in that it writes the scope in a way that is inclusive, whereas sort of the, the telecoms code tears itself apart trying not to be inclusive, if you see what I mean. So if I were to do anything, I'd change the code, <laughs> to be honest. Um, in terms of country differences, now operating in three countries in Europe, uh, I, I totally agree that um, there are some very big cultural differences in relation to data privacy, but also individual privacy. And that um, we see that outside of the scope of, of these new regulations. We see it in practice today. I've lost count of the number of times I've been asked um, in the UK, how do we verify customers uh, when they uh, get a prepay card, a prepay uh, SIM? We don't we don't have in the UK a standard national form of identity. That's our protection um, and that's our privacy. Whereas in Germany, where you do have a standard national ID card, your communications is private. They know who you are, but your communications is private. Whereas in the UK, they don't know who you are, but your communications maybe is more open to uh, interception. So in all of these things, it's a balance. Similar question. Yeah, I mean, I can just quickly echo what was said before. Um, in terms of the value of the cookies, I think you might want to look more towards uh, IAB, which is the um, Advertising Association. They probably have a little bit more information on that. Um, you know, I, I don't know how they go about quantifying it. I mean, if I use a practical example, I mean, our website, Digital Europe's website, we use first-party cookies, and it's simply for analytics to make sure to see how many people are coming to our website, how many people click on, you know, when we post a news update. We don't generate any value off of that. We don't have any advertising on our web page. So then you would say, okay, the value of that data is what, zero, but there is some data created. But another website might also use that first party cookie for generating data. And then they might use it to, I don't know, say, okay, our website's not working. So let's create a new website. And there's obviously some sort of economic activity there. So I think, I mean, it's, it's important to remember that data in and of itself, raw data, is very difficult to value. It's how you use the data and what you do with the data, right? Um, but of course, maybe if you want to look at uh, the value of third-party cookies and how that's being used, maybe they have some, some information there. Um, in relation to, to the court providing certainty, I mean, partly that's the reason for why the court exists, but I would sort of echo what Jeremy said is, I don't think that's a practice that 
we would want to sort of encourage or emulate because indeed that means if I'm looking at it from, from the perspective of the Digital Europe members, their main objective is to obtain legal certainty. So the last thing that they want to do is you know, go through a legislative process, have the legislation in place, and then go through an entire legal process to finally get some clarity from the court and be doing that all over again. That's certainly not something that you know, we would want to encourage or we would like to have happen. Um, it's an important role for the court to play if that's necessary, but sort of using the court as the final um, judgment for providing legal clarity, I'm not sure that's the model that Europe should really sort of be, be pushing and, and moving towards. Um, and then in relation to, to the EDPS um, opinion, again, I, I haven't had a chance to read it. Um, you know, I, I'd be more interested in seeing as well how they look at the definitions because, I, I mean, I, I know at least from, from the point of Digital Europe member companies, the, the way that the, the definitions in the actual legislation between metadata and content data and is actually metadata viewed as high risk or not. I mean, combined with this discussion of, of, of the interplay between um, the scope and how that's a bit of a moving target. I mean, seeing how those work together would be a bit interesting. But at this point in time, again, um, anything can happen in the review process, but I mean, they're, they're talking about things that uh, my personal opinion would be that's not going to change. I think it's going to be linked to the code and I don't see any indication from the council that they suddenly want to separate that process, which is why they're looking at first let's do the code and then we have the definitions, then we deal with the privacy. So. I'm not, I'm not really sure what the uh, what, what will happen there, but I don't have really high expectations on that changing. Well, thank you very much. Uh, as far as time, I would say we have time for another three questions, and at the end I'll give the panelists, let's say, five, uh, a total of five minutes combined for, for closing brief statements, just so you know it's coming. So uh, three questions. Yes, I see there's one in the back. Bruno Basalisco from uh, Copenhagen Economics. Thanks for uh, a lot of uh, useful food for thought. Um, I see around the back uh, the motto, improving economic policy. And uh, I think today, even though we haven't used the economic concept uh, uh, explicitly, we have implicitly, and we have been discussing about the fundamental right. I think everyone here has agreed that this is important. And my question to the panelists is, do we have a grasp, or what are the... Um, trade-offs for us as a society in terms of the costs and benefits of different ways to achieve this fundamental right in a, in a future-proof way. We've heard about cultural dif differences in cultural preferences within Europe. We've heard about different applications from machine to machine to human to human interaction and a variety of sectors and a lot of transaction costs. All of these are tricky concepts. How do we know that we're getting the balance right? Very thoughtful question. Next. Well, I'm not seeing more hands. Why don't we rotate on that one first, and perhaps that'll suggest some more questions. Uh, we've done some um, work looking, going back a long time, but looking at the ARCO rights uh, in the existing legislation. Um, and essentially, the framework we used to analyze that was whether those rights would arise through the competitive process or not, and so whether there was an additional cost. And in general terms, we thought that there would be parties offering the ability to, to amend data because they want data to be better and rectify errors because they want a better customer experience and all that sort of thing. Um, I haven't seen any analysis to a similar degree on, on, the new, on the new package, but that would be the framework I would use is to look at whether you believe through the competitive process um, in the counterfactual that these um, 
these rights would arise. Well, I guess I, I would answer by you know reminding folks too of the fact that one of the reasons we take such an interest in this is not just for the consumer-facing services that I think usually are the examples that you hear the most about, but you know we're really excited about. Um, our customers in Europe, particularly our enterprise customers, uh, large industries, medium-sized industries, small-sized industries, who are building solutions on top of some of the software and cloud computing services in particular that we're providing. So their data may be running on software or platforms that we're providing to come up with new insights and new innovations that are released then in Europe and ideally globally, and you know, the more successful the better. Um, and I think one of the Focus that the focus that we have on this proposal as well is you know we're asking ourselves questions about compliance, but we're echoing many of the questions that we're getting from those smaller customers who certainly don't have the same resources in terms of legal counsel that maybe some of the larger companies have. But are we encouraging? Because I've heard it in many other contexts, particularly from the Commission, how much we want to encourage and build the European data economy. I think you know, we do have to make sure we try to get that balance right and continue to ask that question. You know, are elements of this proposal going to incentivize some of those smaller players that we would like to be at the forefront of the new emerging technologies around AI in particular? And AI and IoT are two instances uh, in particular, I think, that will raise some problems with certain aspects of the e-privacy proposal. So, you know, that's a, a roundabout way of trying to say that in terms of that economic impact, you know, we have to be looking at how these proposals do stimulate growth. Um, I don't think anybody wants to sacrifice or anybody should sacrifice or do anything to chip away at a, a fundamental right to confidentiality or fundamental right to privacy. Um, but, you know, I think the Commission would agree that we want to make sure that we're encouraging uh, citizens across Europe to benefit from these services and to develop more and more of them. Um, so just a couple of comments on that. Uh, in this context, there has been a lot of discussion about whether or not a cost-benefit analysis is um, appropriate, given that we're talking here about the, the protection of, or, you know, of a policy that is anchored in, in, in a fundamental right. I think it's quite interesting if you look at the GDPR, it's, um, it's explicitly linked as its legal basis to Article 16 of the treaty. Whereas um, if you look at the e-privacy direct, or e-privacy regulation rather, the proposed regulation, it's a bit more open insofar as it's linked to Article 16 plus um, the EU's internal market. So it's general internal market um, competence. So I'm, I'm not sure what, what you can draw from that, but I think there's always been a tension there between on the one hand, the idea that the data protection framework is a fundamental rights framework. And then on the other hand, that originally, before we had an EU charter or a right to data protection, it was designed to ensure the free flow of personal data, which is a very economic purpose. And so um, I don't think you could apply a strict cost-benefit analysis in, in this context, while recognising, of course, that you have to somehow try, try and limit the, the costs. And I think you can see that when you look at a few of the provisions. I've been working recently on um, the right to data portability. And there you can see um, very clearly that the application of the right to data portability is entirely decoupled from economic logic. You know, if you looked at data portability from a competition law perspective, or as the Commission is doing for non-personal data, it says, well, we need to assess whether or not there'll be adverse effects for data portability. 
Whereas when you look at the GDPR right to data portability, it applies irrespective of whether or not, uh, or, you know, what those economic effects are. It doesn't matter if there's dominance. It doesn't matter if it's an SME. It doesn't matter if the, if the data is useful for switching, for instance. So um, I think, you know, many of these rules are decoupled from that economic logic. And that does, that does then pose the question of how do you then stimulate growth here? And clearly the, the commission believes, and I, I think there's something to it that, um, that, that the way forward is to, is to have trust in digital services. Um, because, you know, I know just looking at some of Facebook's recent um, public affairs work, for instance, it's been kind of touring the world on its, uh, discussing and getting stakeholder feedback on um, trust in, 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 and control over user information in um, the digital economy, recognizing that the more users are able to equip themselves with ad blockers and various privacy enhancing technologies, the more that's problematic for, for companies. And so you end up with a bit of a, an arms race. So the better way forward here, perhaps the more sustainable way forward, would be to bring consumers with you um, by by, by facilitating trust and, and creating kind of products that that have privacy and data protection as, as an inbuilt feature. Now that might be totally idealistic, but um, I think given that there's going to be no give in, in the European rules, which I think is correct, then that's the, the only way forward really. I think that you posed a very important but very difficult question. Uh, the commission itself, uh, for example, they, they'd uh, that had an independent study done of the e-privacy directive, and the, more or less the opening pages lament the fact that they couldn't get any data. Uh, the opening pages of the proposed regulation itself laments that the commission couldn't find any data. Uh, I happened to be leading a study of e-privacy in multiple non-European countries in 2008. We asked a couple of dozen experts um, a, a number of questions about privacy in general. The one to which no one gave us any answer whatsoever was the question of the value of the, uh, of the privacy arrangements in, uh, in Europe. So I, I think this is one that very few people have good data on. I would also add that there's reason to think that the average consumer has difficulty valuing uh, privacy for their own purposes. Some of the experimental e economics that come from people like Aquisti suggest that this is a, a, a challenge for the consumer as well. So it's, it's a tough problem. Um, if you know people that are working on their PhDs, it's probably a great thesis topic if they can actually make headway on it, which I'm not sure. Um, and uh, with that, I would say we have time maybe for one more question if anyone has one. Well, seeing no hands, why don't I invite the panelists to make some closing statements and perhaps respond to what they think they've heard both from the other panelists and from the audience. Yeah, sure. Um I mean, we have obviously had a, some very interesting points, and when you come to these questions about how you go about uh, finding the striking the right balance, um, it's always a tricky thing, and sometimes you don't know until the legislation is in place and a couple of years have gone by, and then you see what the problems are. Um, I mean, I think for some of this, some of these issues, let's say, especially when it comes to the data economy, we won't find out until 10 years from now, if we're sitting here again in Brussels talking about building a digital single market, clearly this hasn't worked, right? Clearly, clearly that hasn't, hasn't served its purpose. Um, and I think, you know, correctly, the Commission's view is they want to, in some instances, stop Europe just being a place where people sell their products and instead being the place where they develop their products and they invest their R&D. And that's totally fair and that's something certainly that, that Digital Europe is encouraging and what our members do want to do. 
Um, when you do sort of get into these discussions, and it does get very tricky when you start talking about fundamental rights um, and, uh, and, and sort of how to reach that balance, especially when you start getting close to talking about the fundamental right to data protection and fundamental right of privacy. But at the end of the day, no right is absolute, right? And it says that even in the recitals of the GDPR, it needs to be balanced with all other rights in there, right to free speech, the right to security, the right to run a business, all these things. Um, and what we're seeing, at least, is some of our companies are saying, you know, we have to really make a tough decision after we go through this entire compliance regime. If we want to actually build out a product here in Europe, and maybe we have the best skilled people, and maybe we have the best infrastructure, and all these positive aspects, I have to counterbalance that with the risk that's associated that even if I do my very best to comply, I might trip up somewhere. And if I run into a data protection authority who feels like they want to exercise their right to fine me 4% of my global turnover, that's a pretty tough decision to make for companies. And what we don't want to see happen is companies say, it's not worth the risk. I'm going to create my product or my solution in Asia, in South America, and North America, and then import that product into Europe. We, again, haven't solved the problem of actually building that growth um, here in Europe. And that's certainly something that we hope is not going to happen with e-privacy. I'm not trying to be overdramatic to say that e-privacy is going to be the legislation that decides where companies will or will not develop their products. But it's not a stretch to say that it won't play into that actual, uh, into that actual thought process. Um, the last thing I would say is sort of actually we haven't talked too much uh, in, in relation to the international transfer issue. Um, you know, what, one thing that's, that's quite interesting is we keep talking about adequacy and, and the use of these, these transfer tools and the risks that are facing them. But we're always talking about it in a one-way discussion, protecting data when it leaves Europe, which is something that we need to do. But we never talk about how can we create data flows coming into Europe to sort of build up the European data processor market. So it's not every time you select a, a service that the processor and the analytics are being run by a company somewhere else. And it's always focusing on this one-way discussion. That's something that I know Digital Europe members are really interested in sort of raising awareness that it's a two-way discussion, right? We need to make sure that we actually bring competitiveness into Europe, right? And so when we do have discussions now, as noted in the, in the communication, um, that we're beginning adequacy uh, negotiations, or even though it's a one-way decision or a unilateral decision by the commission, but it's still a, a discussion with the Japanese government, for instance. A lot of these other jurisdictions around the world, they have their own form of adequacy, right? And part of that is the negotiating tactic of these other jurisdictions. But instead of only focusing on how can we make sure that the data that leaves Europe is safe in Japan, how can we make sure that we can prove to Japan that we also get an adequacy decision? So the data can flow freely from Japan into, the, into Europe as well, which is beneficial to the European economy. So it's a little bit of a, of a two-way street here that we need to pay attention to. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, I mean, Digital Europe is involved in, in the case in Ireland, and I, I don't necessarily want to talk about ongoing litigation due to limitations of what I can and cannot say. Um, but one thing I just want to want to clarify, which is important, which sometimes gets gets uh, distorted, and it wasn't mentioned during this panel, but I've heard it so many times here in, in, in panel discussions in Brussels, is what the court actually said with Safe Harbor. What it actually said was the commission didn't do its due diligence properly when it made its assessment of the U.S. legal framework. And because of these allegations of Snowden and because of the facts that are in front of me as the court, I have enough reasonable doubt to assume that the commission didn't do a full assessment of US law. So therefore, the actual adequacy decision in and of itself is invalid because it wasn't a proper, they basically didn't do their homework. 
So I think that's what we're also going to be facing. So the Court of Justice didn't make a ruling on if the US legal system is or is not adequate. And it probably won't be doing that again anytime in the future if Privacy Shield does or doesn't come in front of the Court of Justice again. What it will rule on is did the commission actually do its homework and do these mechanisms meet certain standards that exist in the Charter of Fundamental Rights, not if the US or isn't adequate, because the only entity who can do that is the commission, but they can strike down the way that they go about doing that information. It's interesting. <coughs> so I think you just heard about, instead of a balance of trade, a balance of bits. You heard it here first. Yeah. Yeah, import and export of regulation is actually, uh, I think when I retire, that will be my PhD thesis. <laughs> um, our experience is that GDPR, because it sets a sort of gold standard, is being implemented by lots of countries in, in order to obtain data flows. Um, in other pieces of legislation, we've seen in our Latin American uh, entities that um, national regulators and governments have actually stopped implementing net neutrality regulation fashioned uh, to reflect the e EU and are now looking to America and trying to deregulate because they see that as a competitive uh, change. Um, anyway, that's an aside. In relation to uh, this, the e-privacy, um, we talked a lot about clarity. We talked a lot about um, consistency. Um, I think the way you described it before as GDPR is the base uh, legislation and this is the special legislation just for this sector means that there has to be a link. You can't forget what you did with GDPR and start again. And, and that's what we see at the moment in the proposal. So we would like to re-establish that link. Um, and then our plea is really leave, there be some scope for competition and there to be some scope for firms to manage the relationship in a, in a customer-friendly way. That's what we do, that's how we earn money. Um, with all respect, legislators do not understand how to do that and the cookies legislation is a prime example of how not to deal with the customer experience in legislation. Yeah, I, I would just say that in the context of e-privacy with so much moving in this space um, we just want to make sure that we're coming up with workable solutions for all the reasons that the Commission I think would share and all of our customers would share. Uh, we'd like legal certainty, we'd like harmonized rules, um, and we would like, of course, rules that encourage rather than inhibit competition, that encourage rather than inhibit innovation. Uh, that's, that's something I don't think too many people disagree with, but when you look at some of the text here, especially when you're looking at texts in a privacy context, GDPR has been cited many times, but you know there's a proposal floating for uh, digital contracts, which goes at this question of data as a counterperformance. And then we have consultations that are looking at questions around portability in a B2B context and data access. So these are a lot of moving targets. And if you're trying to make sure that you're doing everything by the book, you know, the target keeps changing. So we need a lot of time, I think, to adequately discuss the implication on the wide range of services that are now going to be captured in this new set of obligations. Um, so I think the timeline that was announced by the Commission might be a bit ambitious, and I do hope we have adequate time to land on some workable solutions. Um, well, I, I think I can be very brief. Two, two comments, really. Um, the, the first is just to echo the, the importance of, of aligning, to the extent possible, the e-privacy regulation with the GDPR here. Um, 
And, you know, I think of most concern to, to civil society seems to be um, the, the cookie issue and the, and the level of consent or the standard for consent there, as well as, um, you know, there's a very anomalous provision on hotspots where um, for data emitted from, um, from particular devices, you just need to have notice of the fact that that data is being um, collected and, and processed rather than it seems to indicate that consent is not necessary, which is really um, at, at odds with everything in the GDPR and also other provisions of um, the e-privacy regulation. So I'm assuming that won't survive the legislative process. And then the second point, just on the, the influence, um, you know, I, I would agree that, of course, data flows shouldn't be um, one way. And in many ways here, I think the EU has just, I think it's a very rare example, if I may, of EU regulatory supremacy, um, where the EU just had a first mover advantage as a, as a result of the way that the, that the adequacy provisions were structured in the directive. And so as a result, you'll see that it's the EU model for data protection has been the blueprint for data protection models um, worldwide. And so you very much see kind of a co um, coalescence around the EU standard. And um, so as a result, I think the adequacy standard still has, has a lot of influence. Now, I, I would agree with the point that TREMS, of course, didn't say that the court could determine um, whether or not a particular country offered an adequate level of protection. But in addition to holding the commission to, um, to a particular standard of review, I think it's important to emphasize that the court also says that in this context, because the assessment that the commission is making is one that's based on a fundamental right or fundamental rights. So unlike, for instance, commission decision-making in the competition law context, where the commission is afforded um, a very broad um, margin of discretion to the complex legal and economic factors, um, in this context, the court says there's a very strict standard of review. And I think that's also going to be very important um, going forward. And then just the, the final point, I think the other side of this coin is so the, the EU has kind of managed to, to have leverage vis-a-vis -vis third countries through this adequacy um, framework. Um, but on the point that was raised about whether or not um, you know, startups, et cetera, might consider moving outside of the EU because of the regulations that are in place, I think the GDPR, and it seems the e-privacy regulation is going in the same direction, have very broad um, jurisdictional scope of application as well. So if you're offering services or monitoring the behavior of EU residents, then the GDPR um, applies to you. Now, all, all bets are on as to how that will be enforced, but certainly for, the, for bigger companies, um, that means that if you want to go to market in the EU, you still need to respect these rules, whether or not you have um, a physical presence um, in the EU. And again, I think we could question whether or not the, the court's judgments and other movements here are, are pointing towards EU data localization. I think that was probably, for me, one of the, the potentially worrying um, parts of the Tele2 judgment, where the court said that in order to comply with the rights to data protection and privacy, you needed to have um, the data stored <laughs> um, in, in the EU. And I think that's something that you know, you could really <laughs> challenge as to whether or not it's a proportionate or necessary for the protection of um, fundamental rights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for a quite fascinating panel. Well, we're at time. In fact, we're right on time, more or less. So with that, uh, I'd like to thank the audience, and I hope the audience will thank the panelists.